Welcome to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. In this podcast series, every two weeks, host Audrey Dove shares with you a new topic related to innovation and its impact for the legal world, with a special focus on intellectual property. I ask questions to experts, visionaries, influential people from all over the world in order for all of us to learn more about the evolution of the legal and IP ecosystem, its concepts, and all actual or potential consequences, and connect with others around them. If you're ready to expand your knowledge about the transformation of this industry and stay curious, let's go. My guest today is Jen Frommer. She is a professor of law at New York University, where she's been teaching all forms of IP. And with a solid background in computer science, she even used to be a researcher in artificial intelligence at the MIT. She is an expert in the legal and societal implications of technology. What drives businesses and people to create and capitalize on IP? What's best for the economy in terms of maximizing innovation? And her publications, from Harvard to Stanford Law Reviews and many more, raise these questions. Jenny, Do you feel that the booming in high-tech innovation requires some kind of reshaping of IP law in depth, or do you rather believe that the law as it is can be fine-tuned or adapted without major changes? It's an interesting question. I think it's not a new question either in the sense that technologies often come along, particularly in the intellectual property space, to disrupt the law or our understanding of the law. And I think we've seen this quite a bit over time in both trademark law and copyright law in the sense that, um, you know, people come up with new technologies for selling or buying, and that's going to obviously have effects on trademark law. And when people come up with new technologies for copying or distributing or creating, that's going to affect copyright law. And you see this over time. One of my favorite examples of this, you have Daystar, the Supreme Court's um, decision in Daystar, and many cases beforehand raising the issue of what to do when someone takes someone's non-physical product, not the usual physical goods and services that we think Mm -hmm. about, the canonical goods and services we think about when it comes to trademark, and they slap their name on it. And is that a trademark issue? So the Supreme Court stepped in, they started to make it clear that copyright and trademark laws have different purposes, even though they've become increasingly intertwined as the non-physical product became disaggregated from the physical given the latest technologies. And I, I think, you know, just looking to the past shows that for the most part, IP laws can, they're, they're capacious enough mm-hmm. in many ways that um, it's easy for thoughtful courts, regulators to interpret the existing laws in light of um, the new technologies that are sitting in the background or sometimes come into foreground. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be the case all the time. I think, you know, it's particularly when there's that capaciousness Mm -hmm. is lacking in the law. Something is pinned down very precisely and it doesn't align with where technology has gone. That's when there's the headbutting and on the margins, you know, there might be some need to fine tune um, the law itself directly. How would you see this fine tuning? 
I think, you know, the development of the internet over time has been really a nice case study on this front. And, you know, take the example of people snapping up domain names early on in the wild, wild west of the early internet. And it wasn't clear that trademark law really could have much to say about someone buying up a .com name that was based on someone else's established business and it was in a space where this person wasn't doing any business. And so the law stepped in to do something about that, and perhaps, you know, for good reason. And so that's a place where maybe trademark law didn't have as much to say, and perhaps there was a good reason to want to make sure that the people that had established goodwill and developed their own mark would be able to to have .com. Now, here's the complicating factor. Not that long after all of that, search engines became that much better and that much more prevalent, and it made having the specific .com name that's associated with your established business a little bit less relevant. I, I don't mean to minimize that. I think businesses still want to be able to use their name as a .com when they can, but it's less important than it probably used to be. And so I, I guess you know one thing to draw from this is sometimes the law needs to step in or it seems like the law can't cover it. It was really about the flexibility built into the law, and we understand that trademark law did it there. That's what happened in this case. Um, but nonetheless, whether or not the law was effective and whether or not the law stepped in, search engines probably would have done a lot of this work in the long run. But on the other hand, it, it was probably helpful that people were proactively thinking, does the law accommodate this, should it? Um, the internet did raise new issues um, early on about whether things like meta tags, you know, buried in um, web pages or keyword advertising um, that tailored search results were the uses of trademarks when they weren't visible to consumers or searchers mm -hmm. or internet users. IP innovations are often seen as challenging the usual frontiers of IP law to develop new services or businesses. Think about YouTube or Spotify or Shazam in the music industry or even fashion in general. In this context, Jenny, is there a way for IP rights holders to better protect the value of their works or should we consider IP law is actually shaped in a way that favors this kind of innovations? Well, you're asking me the question that really drove me out of a computer science PhD program and into law school in the first place. There's always been so much thinking on whether society drives technology or technology drives society. Um, but I've been long fascinated by the question of how law fits into that. Should the law intervene to change technology? Should the law intervene to change society? Or should the law sit back and let the society technology dynamic play itself out? And I'm convinced that iTunes and then Pandora and then Spotify would likely never have existed or at least would have taken much longer to come out but for the disruption that was brought about by Napster. And, you know, in that context, it took the availability of technology plus a punk mm -hmm. to make Napster happen. And when Napster was out there and then you had all these people sharing music for free, The music industry at that point woke up to some danger ahead to their business and started making its music available digitally. It could have done that long before that. It's um, the industry cannibalized. They worried about freely available music that would hurt them, so they just stopped the process. And then when they couldn't uh, anymore, 
they got on board, um, and they got on board legitimately through iTunes, Pandora, and Spotify, and the mm -hmm. like. The music industry has been reshaped for sure. Yeah, but there are a lot of traditional players that are making money in this new model when they all thought, or at least said, that digital availability would kill them all off. Owners of intellectual property often don't know what will be good for them down the line as technology comes in, because technology is very unpredictable. And they may think something's going to kill them, but industries are a lot more adaptable, and ad adaptation works. I mean, I think that's what we've seen with the music industry when they finally were disrupted and brought, bought into digital availability of music. Yeah, it's better to let the technologies bloom when the consequences seem uncertain and industry could find a way of adjusting. Do you have an example in mind? A great recent example of this um, has to do with the artist Richard Prince. You know, Richard Prince did this Instagram show where he took other people's content from Instagram and he took the, the Instagram um, photo and the, the whole look, and the comments, and he added his one, just one comment to it and he displayed um, many of these photos together. There was a lot of reaction about how to deal with the fact that he took people's intellectual property. And um, is this a, is something the law should be troubled about? I think you know what's really interesting is to contrast um, what you know two different groups did in this case. There were a number of people that just took the conventional path and sued Richard Prince for copyright infringement. This was some years ago, and their cases are still ongoing, dragging on. And then on the other hand, you had this other group, the Suicide Girls. Um, Richard Prince um, had taken a number of their photos. They described themselves as um, an alternative pinup collective. They decided instead of going to court, they were going to reappropriate Richard Prince's taking of their work and make a commentary on it by taking it back, by saying what they've done is true art. They did that by making exactly the same size canvas printings that he had done, and they sold them for $90 when his were selling for closer to almost $100,000. People snatched this up, they got a lot of attention, and they probably made out better monetarily and in terms of attribution and attention than they would have if they'd still be dragging court. I believe you actually tell that story in one of your publications with Amy Adler. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, um, Amy Adler, my colleague at NYU, and I are doing a work that's um, being published shortly in the California Law Review on people taking intellectual property into their own hands to show how technology enables rights holders to protect themselves, perhaps in somewhat different ways than we're used to. The law is really important, and I think it provides so many procedural protections as well, and, and so forth. But at the same time, technology is enabling people to assert themselves in ways that can pay off as to protect their, their intellectual property as well. It should be interesting to assess over time this phenomenon and how IP self-help is exercised on social media and even elsewhere. Still on infringement of IP rights, do you think, Jenny, AI-based tools can help lawyers in assessing cases they manage? For instance, we hear about software designed for fair use assessment purposes. And what's your take on this? I watch these with fascination, but I'm skeptical uh, about them. Bottom line, I think lawyers' jobs are safe, but software like this can guide lawyers as a tool. 
I just don't think that they can fully automate something that is so intricate. You, you know, to take uh, technology that's prevalent right now, someone creates, um, using machine learning, they create some fair use software mm-hmm. that is based on every single court decision ever on fair use, and then it gives you a prediction about whether a work is fair use. But mm-hmm. as a lawyer, I still want to know how best to argue for or against fair use in a very complex machine learning model won't be able to explain that to me as a mere and limited mortal. It's also only as good as the data that's gone into it. Is that data accurate? Are the factual scenarios representative? So I worry that when something's as intricate as something like fair use or any multi-factored, somewhat flexible test, that the computers can be helpful but they can't be all we rely on. And so I think humans and lawyers are here to stay, which hopefully is reassuring. But I do have hope that these tools can be really helpful. And are there illustrations related to IP law as an incentive for innovation? Yeah, it's, it's you know, funny. Uh, you know, as I stopped and thought about um, this issue over the years, it really, you know, centrally occupies what I do. I realized how we know so little on this front about how much is IP law an incentive to innovate? Are people driven to create based on it? Are they driven to create for other reasons? Now, obviously, you know, there's some things that seem intuitively correct that creators need money to survive. Distributors might need to arise around them and they need incentives to create. So incentives seem to be the right way to frame this, but what drives people still is so underknown. And cheaper to create and distribute, actually. Yeah, particularly now in, in this world, it makes the problem so much more poignant. So incentives are not at, perhaps as important or, or the incentives of, uh, of IP law. Um, and I think you see this through people gaining YouTube fame. Social media influences, for instance. Yeah, it's easy to go from being unknown to being very known without the traditional resources that we're seeing. At the same time, it's also really easy to copy people, people that are, you know, YouTubers or influencers on social media. They're able to go from being unknown to known much more quickly. The question is, IP protection necessary for what they do? And that's what's less clear. You know, maybe they are developing a reputation, and once they develop that reputation, anyone else is just a knockoff that's not going to be as desirable. What about businesses? Um, businesses have learned that there's another way that might be a trade-off to IP protection is to extract data from people. Um, I think we've seen this with Facebook, Amazon, and all other companies these days. What they have is this rich set of data on people that becomes very valuable to knowing how to serve those people. And it's it's valuable to sell to other parties, but it's also valuable to use to make um, their products that much better. With ever-moving technology in the background, I feel like I know even less because people seem to be able to find ways to succeed without intellectual property. Trademark is the one thing that I, I think has become so much more important. People work to protect their brands, either of themselves, like these YouTubers, social media folks, or of their business, like Facebook. And I think trademark is the one thing I question much less because it seems to be really important um, for businesses to establish who they are and be protected from others pre-riding on that.
Beyond Trademarks, how does your current academic research on IP law relate to innovation and high-tech? And what are the cutting-edge topics in IP law scholarship today? Great question, a really fun one, um, given that I love what I get to do. I think one of the most important implications of innovation in high-tech to me in terms of um, academic research is how much um, we're seeing the availability of data and the ability to crunch massive amounts of data. I just um, published um, an article with my colleague at NYU, Barton Beebe, on whether we're running out of trademarks. It came out this year in the Harvard Law Review. And that was this massive empirical study where we studied about 7 million observations of trademark applications or registrations from the 1980s through today. The Patent and Trademark Office making that data available was huge. And the ability for us to work through 7 million <laughs> observations um, is something that would not have been easily possible in years past, but most of this we could run on a desktop computer and we've used um, high-speed computing as well. And what we found is that we are, contrary to trademark laws, assumption that there's an infinite supply of words, but we are starting to run out of common words, surnames, and short neologisms. We were only able to do this because of the changes in technology making this data available and making this data processable. And are there other research you can share that confirms these assumptions? We're able to study trademark examination um, in particular. We could study, do examiners examine things differently if they're men or women? Um, do they examine things differently depending on whether they're telecommuting or they're working in um, the PTO office um, directly? So I think it's, that's really nice, and I hope we'll see more of that. And there's so little we know in some ways, and it's really nice to know more because then it allows us either to confirm our intuitions or rethink them. So I think that's one of the most important trends going on and one of the um, exciting things I get to participate in as a scholar. You know, there's so many other fascinating issues going on right now. So, for example, um, how different trademark registrations are than how they're processed in, if someone makes um, their way to court mm -hmm. to trademark infringement. Rebecca Tushnet at Harvard has um, written about this. Uh, my colleague at Notre Dame, Mark McKenna, and I are writing about this in the context of how we claim trademark rights in design that registered marks looks so different than when design rights get asserted in court. And people just describe their designs entirely differently than they would describe them were they um, applying to register a trademark. All these questions in the research you make include, I suppose, a certain level of anticipation about the next technologies, the market trends. Do you see specific risks and opportunities there for IP lawyers? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, some of this, I, you're right. I think AI and machine learning are on a bill. I think they're going to be used inwardly to change the tools that copyright and trademark lawyers are using, like to do visual searches for similarity. And um, they'll be great tools to help lawyers out. I think data is going to be huge, too. I think that data-driven searches for trademark names are going to be ever bigger. Everything on the social media horizon is fascinating. I mean, not just, you know, the false advertising issues that we're seeing, but in, try, in terms of trying to work out um, how to understand trademark law in that context, um, people have already started thinking about 
hashtags? Are they, can they be trademarked? Should they be trademarked if they're also being used to index uh, social media posts? Um, there's a fascinating case going on right now where Chanel sued um, what goes around comes around, um, a re- retailer, and which used the Chanel hashtag, and the, re- the retailer is saying, we're selling authentic Chanel products. We're not claiming that we are Chanel. But on the other hand, Chanel says, no, you're using our trademark as a trademark. And so that's going to be really interesting to see that play out. And I just think, you know, data-driven works are going to be so interesting. What do you mean by that? I'm totally fascinated by a business like Choosy. Choosy is what I like to call warp speed fashion. They make fast fashion even faster. And they do this by making fashion designs based on what's trending on social media, whether it's Beyonce tour costumes or Kim Kardashian's outfit. They just make their own version quickly and get it out there. And they know people like it because people have been liking social media posts or engaging with social media posts on that fashion. The speed at which things are going are going to raise interesting legal questions. So there's going to be plenty of work for IP lawyers as technology develops. That's good news. Can I ask you now, what's your secret, Jenny? How do you keep up with tech innovation? And are there sources of publications you would recommend to our listeners to learn more about today's topics? I think the only way to do it is, uh, in addition to having an open mind, um, to engage in a lot of reading, whether it's on Twitter, it's Facebook, it's great blogs, traditional media. I definitely think there's some great work out there. I have to plug, you know, the fashion law blog that Julie Zerbo writes. She has her finger on the pulse of not just the fashion industry, which you might think from the title, but also high-tech development as well as they relate to intellectual property. Eric Gardner in The Hollywood Reporter is a very sophisticated journalist um, reporting on intellectual property law in the entertainment industry. Scott Graham, Guild in the Arts, is a great read on patent law developments in the space. Um, And I think it's really one of the best things to keep up with tech and science in a more in-depth way than you might get if you're drinking from the hose of Twitter is uh, Quanta magazine. They publish in-depth analysis on different scientific or technological things in the news, whether it's machine learning or quantum computing, things that you might hear about as a buzzword, but you don't understand what they are. I think these are that's a great source to getting the background so you can think through how to ask the right questions about the legal implications. Thank you, Jenny, for this discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Really fun to get a chance to talk. My guest today was Professor Jane Frommer, who teaches IP law at New York University and is the author of articles about intellectual property and innovation in the most prominent legal publications in the U.S. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for future episodes of Brand and New, a podcast from the International Trademark Association. If you liked this episode and think someone else would too, please share it. And to learn more about INTA, please visit INTA.org.